The podcast you're listening to is part of Sequelcast 2 and Friends, which is a member of the Batman on Film Podcast Network. For more information, go to batman-on-film.com. Pay attention! Get out on your knees! Right now! After the credits roll, there's always more to tell. Especially when the video sounds are doing really well. From shock treatment to Jason X to Police Academy 6. This is Sequel Cast, and they are unsurpassed at following a franchise until the better end. This is Sequel Cast, and your hosts have asked that I inform you that the show will now begin. Hello, and welcome to Sequel Cast 2, a podcast looking at movies in a franchise, one film at a time. I'm your host, Matt Bradley Shirky, and with me is William Thrasher. Name, Richard Kimball. Profession, Doctor of Medicine. Destination, Death Row State Prison. Richard Kimball has been tried and convicted for the murder of his wife. But laws are made by men, carried out by men, and men are imperfect. Richard Kimball is innocent. Proved guilty, what Richard Kimball could not prove was that moments before discovering his wife's body, he encountered a man running from the vicinity of his home. A man with one arm. A man who has not yet been found. Richard Kimball ponders his fate as he looks at the world for the last time and sees only darkness. But in that darkness, fate moves its huge hand. Yeah, thank you for that. Yeah, that is the original sort of voiceover from the pilot of The Fugitive, which I had to, I didn't even realize this when I saw this movie first as a kid, but is based off a TV show from the 1960s. Yeah, and and that was a big thing at the time there was a lot of stuff from the 50s and 60s that were coming back in movie form there was the a car Brady Bunch, fi- Dragnet yeah the Brady well, Bunch, Dragnet, Dragnet was in the 80s but like around uh, this time we had the Brady Bunch movies we had a car 54 movie uh, a lot a lot of a lot of old TV shows were coming back as feature films yeah um, let me go over some of the essential stats here and then we can talk about when we first watched it. Directed by Andrew Davis, produced by Anne and Arnold Copelson. Screenplay by David Twoge and Jeb Stewart, with a story by David Twoge, based off the TV show The Fugitive by Roy Huggins, starring Harrison Ford, Tommy Lee Jones, Cella Ward, Joe Pantoliano, Andreas Ketzelis, and Uren Crabb. Music by James Newton Howard, cinematography Michael Chapman. Edited by Dennis Verkler, David Finford, Dean Goodhill, Don Brucho, Richard Nord, and Dove Heinig. Um, came out in 93, which is a little bit later than I thought, uh, with a running time of 130 minutes. Off a budget of $44 million, it grossed $368.9 million. That is a ridiculous to... success. That means if you put $8, or you put a dollar into this movie, you got more than $8 back. Right, I'd like to note that is the, um, international gross, but uh, I'm going to quiz you on something, Thrasher. This came out in 93. Where do you think this placed in domestic gross? Uh, well, domestic. I, I have to say, for once, I looked it up. I believe it came in third that year. That's right. Above it at number two, Mrs. Doubtfire. Number one, Jurassic Park. Below it at number four, John Grisham's The Firm and Sleepless in Seattle. Hmm. Yeah, and this doesn't... Ha- so, and I don't, I don't mean this in a, in a derogatory way, but this film 
does not look expensive. Not just that, it, it really brought to mind, you don't see a lot of movies um, like this in the theater anymore. It's dramas made for adults that are not that are not about comic books or set in the 1800s. Well, you know what's funny? This whole thing struck me. This this feels like a, a TV movie or like a TV miniseries. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, you would see this as an HBO limited series or something. Um, and they would stretch it out instead of two hours into, I don't know, ten hours or something. But and, but like uh, every dollar is on the screen. Like every it's it's really it's really kind of strange. Like anything I saw in this movie that looked like it might have been for cost cutting purposes didn't I didn't feel held the movie back. There there is something like it feel you know you know what I think it is? It captures the feel of being an old TV show. Mm. D- despite the fact that there's more that there is you know, sort of more sex violence and swearing than you would have gotten away with on TV in the 60s. Yeah, um, I, I did check out the original TV show a little bit. I watched some of the pilot, and I, I was really amazed they had that voiceover that Thrasher you started the show with. And then he escapes from the train, like, within the first two minutes of the first episode of the show. Um, and it aired from 63 to 67. Started out in black and white. I believe only the final season is in color. Yeah, only season four uh, was in color. And although the ratings kind of bounced around a lot, the season finale in which you find out, um, in which he catches up to the one-armed man, that was one of the best, most-watched TV shows of all time. Yeah, I mean, it it was was record-breaking. Also, it was a Quinn Martin production. What else did Quinn Martin bring us? Uh, lots of, uh, lots of these kinds of shows. Actually, let me, uh, let me, uh, look that up. And it's, it's funny, the whole reason I even know about Quinn Martin was because of a weird sketch they did on MST3K about Quinn Martin trying to produce a series about, uh, about, uh, investigators. Okay, let's see. What else has he done? So he did The Fugitive, he did the, uh, Western, I'm sorry, no, the, uh, World War II fighter, uh, show, 12 O'Clock High, he did another criminal investigation show, the FBI, he did the science fiction series, The Invaders, which has a really grim premise if you dig into it, because it turns out the whole reason the invaders are on Earth is they're harvesting human organs. Huh. But Streets of San Francisco, another detective show, Canon, he did Barnaby Jones, uh, he was he was all over television uh, in the sixties and seventies. Yeah, I um, looking up info about the director Andrew Davis because I'm like that name does not sound familiar, and I would think uh, this movie was such a cultural uh, touchstone. I mean, remember I think one of the Ace Ventura movies we talked about last year. He goes like, uh, "It wasn't me; it was the one-armed man." Like, I mean, you saw spoofs of this everywhere. Leslie Nielsen did the movie Wrongfully Accused. Which I, I have to admit, uh, after I watched The Fugitive, I went on YouTube and just watched the best scenes from Wrongfully Accused. Wrongfully Accused is one of the better uh, late-period Leslie Nielsen movies, in, as far as I'm concerned. It's, it's got some good gags. But yeah, this this movie had an outsized cultural impact. I think it took I think it took people by surprise because they didn't make a big deal in the run up to this film. They didn't make a big deal pointing out that it was based on a classic TV series. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm a lot. I'm sure a lot of the people that knew it was based on a classic TV series were ready to write it off. So when it was such a big critical or financial success, it was a huge surprise. But it is it is referenced and parodied to this day. Um, 
it's it's oh god like uh infamously the critic has multiple references to this uh this movie the simpsons has multiple references to this movie mm. right and there's in some way there's no better compliment you can pay to your piece of art you know it's kind of like if it's a movie if it's spoofed on the simpsons that's mean you've made it and if it's music, it's Weird Al Yankovic, right? And it's uh, true, and it's and it's worth and it's worth pointing out. This is the movie that made Tommy Lee Jones a household name. He was sort of a bit player and a character actor with the occasional starring role. But after this, Tommy Lee Jones starts getting cast in everything. Well, I'm glad you mentioned that because the director Andrew Davis, uh, some of the more notable things he did before The Fugitive was uh, Steven Seagal's uh, debut, Above the Law. Um, which also had Pam Greer and uh, Sharon Stone in it. Uh, and uh, more importantly, uh, he did the first Under Siege movie, which has Tommy Lee Jones as the bad guy. Mm. In a huge part. Who's on? I think he's on screen in that movie more than, like, twice as much as Steven Seagal. <laughs> and so I think Andrew Davis was pivotal in helping get Tommy Lee Jones cast in the role of Gerard, uh, but before we quite, you know, we've talked a bit about the background of the movie and the director and stuff, but Thrasher, when did you first see The Fugitive? Uh, the first time I saw it would have been a year or so after it came out uh, on, when it showed up on HBO. Yeah, I saw it on the videotape, I remember renting it from Blockbuster Video, I don't think my dad even told me it was from a TV show, I certainly had no idea, um, and I just thought, like, oh, the, these are these uh, clever twists and turns. And uh, uh, But as a kid, I, I, I could recognize how Harrison Ford was uh, underplaying his role to seem more like a normal guy. You know, he, it clearly is not, it's not like he's just copying his Indiana Jones performance. Yeah, I mean, until his, uh, until his uh, showdown, oh, excuse me, yeah, until his showdown with Sykes on the elevated train... It, he really does not play it like an action hero. He plays it like a guy who's in over his head. And something that really, really helps this movie, uh, Harrison Ford and Tommy Lee Jones get equal time. Mm. We, we get to see a lot from both of their perspectives, and it's interesting to see like when, when the characters meet up and confront each other. I, I, yeah, I really yeah. like that. It is just as much about Samuel Gerard as it is about Richard Kimball. It is. An inspiration for the TV series was the uh, Victor Hugo novel Les Miserables. Oh, with Jean Valjean. Yeah, with um, the Harrison Ford part um, as Jean Valjean, and then the other one as Javert. So, I mean, I think that's a very loose connection. You could argue the same thing about like the Incredible Hulk TV show had a lot of that same kind of... Um, thing going on. Well, well, the Hulk, the Incredible Hulk, actually, that part of its structure was inspired by The Fugitive. Was it? Okay, where well, the guy's trying to chase him down. The reporter, I think, in that show. Um, yeah, and with The uh, the Fugitive, a good bit of trivia uh, I saw in a documentary uh, was uh, in the beginning of the film, and it does a lot of flashbacks to what happened the night that uh, Dr. Kimball's uh, wife was murdered, um, Harrison Ford has a beard which you don't see a lot. And this was Harrison Ford's idea, and the studio fought against it, and they said, people wouldn't recognize you if you have a beard. And he said, listen, if I have a beard in the beginning, and then I have to go and, and escape, I can shave off the beard. Which is smart. Recognized. Yeah, which is smart. And part of this character, and there's a, a great line of dialogue that we'll talk about, uh, where he says, like, 
oh, you won't be able to catch him. He's smarter than you. He can do that. You know, he can do this. He can do that. So, by shaving off the beard, that also makes him look like normal Harrison Ford most of the movie. Because <laughs> yeah. he does look different with a beard, and even uh, nowadays, you rarely see him with a beard in performance. So, so I gotta say, Harrison Ford with a beard in 1993 looks like Jeff Bridges now. Yeah, he looks twice his age too. Like it. Um, Harrison Ford has kept in shape his whole career, and he I think he looks very good in this movie. This is, you know, uh, around the same time he did the Tom Clancy uh, movies, right? The Patriot Games and Clear and Present Danger. Oh, yeah. And he's fit and stuff. But with the beard, especially, like, he really grew out the beard to look um, kind of slovenly, uh, even though he's a doctor. And it, it it's just a very, what a smart character decision. Well, yeah. and that's something that uh, is is great about uh the way uh the way this movie uh it handles things is that we we do get to see all the different ways John Kimball after he escapes is trying to remain hidden and evading the cops and it all happens in stages you know so stage 1 he he shaves his beard but then stage 2 he dyes his hair black uh yeah stage right. stage 3 he get he fakes being a janitor so no so people will just ignore him when he's out and about. There's like, a wonderful sequence where he's trying to get, um, I guess, pictures for the fake ID as the janitor. And he does some very, he, he does this really kind of like silly, exasperated expression that I thought was very charming, where he rolls up his eyes and kind of grins. Oh, yeah, like, where well, he's, he's in not one gonna of those photo booths that he's in a photo booth. photos. And the thing, the thing I like about that is all the faces he makes, they're not like big, mugging faces. They're all faces that a frustrated person might make while getting an embarrassing ID photo taken. Yeah. Uh, now you mentioned that Tommy Lee Jones has the same screen time as Harrison Ford, and I'll take your word on that, but, but Tommy Lee Jones' character has a lot more dialogue. Oh, yeah, he he's always talking, uh, which is which is which is nice. And, like, he's... You, actually, you know what he reminds me of? He reminds me of, like, uh, the uh, like a fast-talking FBI man in, like, a 1950s, uh, 1950s movie. <laughs> yeah, or, or even, like, a... Uh, almost like a, a, a bickering couple, like, in a 1930s comedy or something, where you have that really smart dialogue. Well, all the other U.S. Marshals that are with him, he's always kind of doing this back and forth with them. And yeah. they all talk like people who have a lot of history, but we don't really go into that. Well, let's talk about the screenwriters, right? Uh, one of them, the one who gets story and screenplay credit, which means he did, you know, the most, the first and the, a lot of the drafts, is David Twilhey, who we have talked about before for the Riddick series. Oh, that's true. And Jeb Stewart uh, is known for writing uh, action films like uh, Die, Die Hard. Hard. And another forty-eight hours. That's not much to brag about. Um, and a lock two, up. Two movies uh, we covered. Right. Yeah. So we've covered that stuff too. So I mean, these are people with action movie pedigrees, and um, I think especially the inclusion of David Twilhey really speaks to the intelligence of the script. Um, it, it's just like this is better than I remembered it being as a kid. I think as a kid, I bet I was bored. And, and right off the bat, watching it, what struck me is the font for the titles is, is horrendous. <laughs> you have the fugitive in this blue, kind of shimmering, video toaster uh, font. 
It looks like something out of... It looks like they took the overdone titles out of a trailer and just slapped it into the movie, and it doesn't fit the tone. Well, beyond that, like, in the in the letters, we see this kind of grainy footage of the, of the drainage tunnel chase sequence <laughs> with the flashlight and everything. Yeah, yeah. And and the whole the, the, and you wouldn't think it, but like that opening th- that bit with the uh, with the, the title, it really looks like the title you would get in the Golan Globus ripoff of the Fugitive. Right, or something about the the graininess reminded me a bit of Salman King's Red Shoe Diaries. I don't know why, but <laughs> yeah, it, it's it's just very it, that one thing that struck me that kind of dates the film is. And I, I know I'm quibbling here talking about fonts and titles of a film, but it, it just that that just really struck me initially. So something but, that struck me related to fonts and titles. Um, yes. We are still seeing credits in this movie 13 minutes in. Uh, yeah, you're right. That's odd. Um, maybe it's to mimic kind of the TV show. I don't know. I mean, possibly. Although, although again, I, I, I mentioned earlier that this kind of felt like a TV miniseries. You could almost see where the act breaks would go, and you probably would get. And after the first commercial, you would get a few more credits, and that would be at about the thirteen-minute mark. Yeah, it reminds me of a story about credits with um, George Lucas and Star Wars. You know, remember how the movie doesn't open with directed by George Lucas, starring this, this, and that. Oh yeah. And the Directors Guild told George Lucas, "Well, if you 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 can't do this." this is against the the guild rules, and George Lucas is like, I'll do what I want. And he got so upset over that, he left the director's guild. Yeah, and he never went back, so far as I he know. Ne- no, mm, never went back. And I think that also made it tougher for him to get directors for other things he was working on, um, Indiana Jones notwithstanding. Hmm. But this is not the um, director's guild cast. Um, <laughs> so back, back to the fugitive... Uh, you know, right off the bat, you get a little bit of him as a doctor and him as, as in, uh, the party and the court case, but you see little little snippets and you get more fl- flashback as the film goes on well, the understand first, more what's happening. The first ten minutes of this movie has an interesting structure because it's yeah, all yeah. real quick scenes that are all sort of cut and jumbled together in this, this, very, this very chaotic chronology. Which admittedly sort of fits the chaos in, in Kimball's life because we see we see flashes of the murder, but we also see flashes of Kimball with his wife. We see flashes of Kimball performing surgery. We see flashes of the trial. We see flashes of Kimball being interrogated by the police. Uh, there's there's a lot going on, and one of the things I love is that there's there's some things slipped into this first ten minutes that pay off big uh, mm. in the climax of the movie. Oh, and something else uh, that I, I like. So uh, the the biggest interaction we have of uh, of uh, Dr. Kimball uh, interacting with his wife is at a charity event that she's organized for a... It, yep. It's such a generic yep. name. It's like the Children's Research Foundation. <laughs> right. Which yeah. I guess you know, is for pediatric medicine. But there, there is, and there's lots of characters that we see at this function that come back later and lots of things that turn out to be very significant to the story. But as as we know from the classic TV series, Kimball was always trying to find the one armed man who killed his wife. And when Kimball enters the charity ball, he really quick uh, says hello to a man with a prosthetic arm. And mm. if this was a shitty movie, 
the guy he meets would have been would the have been killer. The guy. But it's right. not. It's completely there to throw off people who who know the show. It's just another doctor or who happens to have a prosthetic <laughs> arm. And that's something else uh, that I like about this movie. Um, like, the killer isn't the only person who uses the prosthetic. There are several characters we see that get dialogue that have amputations and that, that use prosthetics, and you very rarely see that in the movie. Well, I like that you, you see Dr. Richard Kimball do detective work. He is a man on the run, but he's also not stupid, and he wants to find out who... He wants to track down uh, who really killed his wife. Because the, the setup, and you get more of this, uh, as you mentioned with the flashbacks as you go on, is uh, he, they come home from, uh, from the event, and he sees his wife left him a, a bottle of champagne on ice with uh, rose petals leading up to the bedroom, right? And some glasses, and he's starting to prepare all that, and then he hears, like, the screams, and... And the way they film the fight scenes are in, in slow motion, which I thought was a little bit cheesy, um, and uh, and so forth. But still, uh, they make it. They do a good job of sort of hiding the face of the person who is the one on armed man, so the audience is guessing as much as Richard Kimball. Yes. Um, and the other the other thing about that, and I did I did some thinking about this because when he does when because the the one armed man. The guy, the character who turns out to be the one-armed man, is introduced uh, pa- uh, just past the halfway point uh, in this movie, and Kimball doesn't immediately recognize him. And I kind of like that because it's it speaks to his character. The reason he can't immediately identify the one-armed man and point him out is because in the chaos of the crime scene, he's only thinking about his wife. He doesn't have time to take in specific details about the murderer. Right. It is... And uh, also, I mean, think of the trauma he must have suffered from that scene and how much, he, as, a, as a human, right, he must have thought about what happened over and over again in his mind and, and different things trigger the memory. I think it, it it is kind of a choppy plot structure, but it works. I don't think they're overdoing it. And, I mean, this movie came out a year before Pulp Fiction. And, so it's and, not like you can say they stole it from Pulp Fiction. Well, you know, we're going to come back to that because there's another okay. Pulp Fiction thing that I'm going to want to talk about from near the end of the film. There you go. So, I mean, uh, just like, uh, much like in the TV show, he's he gets sentenced for first-degree murder for killing his wife. Yeah, it's, it's presumed to... he killed her for the life insurance money because she's from yep. a wealthy family and the, right. the, everyone finds the concept of the one-armed man to be preposterous. Which, on its surface, does sound ridiculous. Um but he gets transported with other inmates to the, to the death row uh, uh, facility by bus. But he is, uh, there's a, a crash. Well, well and, it actually no, builds because yeah. one of the inmates fakes having an epileptic fit by That's swallowing right. by swallowing an antacid to like foam at the mouth. Mm-hmm. To and, and that leads to, and but then Shiv's a guard. Uh, but then in the in the fracas with a with a great character actor by the way you you tweeted about him uh, the guy with the bushy mustache the uh the 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 not the non-union equivalent of uh Wilfred Brimley um in the in the struggle the driver of the bus accidentally gets shot the bus goes off the road lands in uh, some railroad tracks Kimball 
Kimball had been had had his cuffs removed earlier because since he's a doctor, they were going to try to use him to save the life of the guy faking the seizure. But Kimball tosses the keys to another inmate so that they can get out of the they can get out of the uh, the the bus before it's hit by the train, and that's that's a real practical effect shot as like a real bus got fucked up by a train. Yeah, that actor's name uh, with the bushy mustache is Richard Real, and I recognized him. <laughs> In uh, the computer game Wind Commander 4, he plays the mechanic when you join up with the, uh, essentially the Rebellion uh, crew. Yeah, and he also appears in a few different Star Trek uh, series. Oh, he, uh, I mean, this, uh, Jesus Christ, according to Internet Movie Database, he has 389 credits. He's a, what you call a real man's working actor. Well, he's one um, of those that guys, you know. Exactly, Uh, and he was even in... um, Played Santa Claus in Harold and Kumar uh, 3D Christmas or whatever that one. Oh, was that's right. And when I saw him in the when I saw that in the theater, I said, "I'm pretty sure that's Brian Doyle Murray." And <laughs> there's some loose resemblance, I think, between the two men. But um, anyhow, but really good actor. He does a great job of looking pathetic when the press is trying to interview him afterwards. Well, like, well, how did you let all these guys get away? And he just looks like sad and grumpy. Yeah, well, because it's it's after so like the uh, Kimball and the surviving criminal, they both go their separate ways, um, and you know then we cut to the next day, and that's when Tommy Lee Jones and the other U.S. marshal deputy U.S. marshals are, are brought in, and it's great because like all the local police officers just want to kind of write it off with like oh well everybody except the one guard obviously died in the crash so we don't have to worry about this and Tommy Lee Jones is like nope nope here's the facts you know we don't there's no bodies and we can't assume that they're dead we got to put up these roadblocks uh and like I like I like how how fast and how no nonsense Tommy Lee Jones is as as deputy US marshal uh, Samuel Gerard and, and and you know he's immediately proved right when somebody brings up a set of empty manacles <laughs> He's like, you know, well, these don't work if there's nobody in them. Obviously, we and, got a runner. And then he launches into the monologue that kicked his career into the big leagues. Yeah, it was in the trailer. It's the, it's the yeah. one that everybody parodied. You know, where he's like, uh-huh. I want to, I want to search of every home chicken coop, dog house, outhouse, house of pancakes on the, in this county. Uh-huh. Yeah, it's it's a great speech and what great delivery. And um, he he doesn't go over the top with this role either, which you could easily do. He is a man of law and order that is doing his job. And later, and I think, uh, you know, you hinted at uh, probably the most famous scene of the film, he has chased Dr. Kimball uh, kind of through the sewers to uh, this uh, kind of area that has uh, an opening and behind him is a waterfall. Yes, this this big drainage duct in a uh, a viaduct slash dam. And it's just and this then, great thing where, you know, Kimball's like, I didn't kill my wife. And Gerard is like, I don't care. Care. Right. Because he's got to do a back, job, and his job is to bring in Kimball. Yeah. And that comes back later, and it's like, wow. And he's not like. Yeah, I, I like that he's not just a. He's not a villain, really. He's just a guy doing his job, and that they both get, you know, pretty close to equal screen time. Well, they are both it's, the heroes of their own stories, and it just so yeah, happens exactly. that because yeah. Kimball is innocent their heroism can dovetail in the film's climax. And the way their relationship changes at the very end of the film, I thought was very sweet, but we'll get there when we get there. Oh yeah. Um, So something I want to say about that viaduct and, uh, and this, this goes back to my love of practical effects, but the establishing shot of the viaduct, 
the whole viaduct is a matte painting. That's great. I didn't know that. Yeah, and, and, well, the thing is, I realized because when the, in the establishing shot we see because uh, this is when uh, uh, there's this uh, there's a, a tunnel uh, that's nearby, and so we're meant to be our eyes are meant to be following the patrol vehicles going into the tunnel, mm. and if you're paying attention to the patrol vehicles, you won't notice that the waterfalls on the viaduct aren't moving because it's a matte painting. But if if you like to take in the whole image on the screen. Yeah. It's very obvious, but I love matte paintings. Matte paintings look so good. It's really a lost art. You still see them um, sometimes, but well, there's, I mean, there's digital matte, but it's not quite the same. No, uh, just that that texture of someone doing something by hand on a canvas and then having to light it the right way and, mm-hmm. and, and you know match it all up to the composite it to the. Uh, film footage. Um, yeah, but, that's, that's a good eye thrasher. That's very good. Yeah, but uh, Kimball jumps off the viaduct and we get a brief shot, a thankfully brief shot of a Harrison Ford dummy uh, tumbling down uh, into the water. That waters. looks terrible. Yeah. And, and once again, everybody wants to write him off as dead and uh, Gerard he says, nope, not until we find a body and is given all these instructions of how they need to, how they need to, to dredge the river and search the shore with dogs. Uh, it's it's great, and, and from this point from this point it becomes a we, a weird kind of cat and mouse where we're always going yeah. back and forth between Kimball Kimball being on the run in Gerard's investigation. We we see all the different steps Kimball takes to uh, to hide his identity, including renting a basement room uh, from this uh, from this Russian woman uh, and and her creepy son. And I'm glad that comes back later. Um, it does. There, yeah. There's a, there's an awesome misdirect this has. Because, um, because so the the movie you know the movie starts in Chicago and Kimball hitches a ride back to Chicago, uh, which is of course you know the last place anyone expects him to be, and so there's a uh, there's a line in uh, in Gerard's investigation where like we 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 got we got a tip a woman gave him a gave him a ride into Chicago and there's this great raid on a house. Well, it turns out the guy in the house isn't Kimball. It's the other inmate. It's the guy that Kimball unchained. Hmm. And, and they really do make it feel like you, they, they really do make you think that they're going to be finding Kimball in that house. Uh, right. Although yeah. we we get a although it's so at one point the the convict does uh, capture uh, or just does like holds. Uh, uh, one of the other uh, marshals hostage, uh, and uh, Gerard sneaks around and shoots him. And in in any other movie, he'd shoot the bad guy, hooray, and that would be the end of the scene. But we get a wonderful aftermath where the uh, marshal that that Gerard saved is talking to him and saying, like, you know, you didn't just have to barge in and shoot him. You should have negotiated. Your gun went off right next to my ear. I could have permanent hearing loss. And there's this neat kind of back and forth they have where Tommy Lee Jones purposefully keeps talking softer and softer, both to make a point, but also to sort of test the other deputy's hearing to prove that his hearing is not as badly damaged as he thinks. And it all sort of climaxes where he just whispers really softly, I don't bargain. Mm. But that still comes back because there's a later scene where Tommy Lee Jones is in his office talking to presumably the DA or at least his uh, higher up within the U.S. Marshal Service talking about like defending his use of lethal force in that circumstance. Like I love that it's not 
it's not allowed to just be an act of redemptive violence. It's an act of redemptive violence. It's an act of violence that has consequences, but it's not necessarily redemptive. Yeah, I mean, this this screenplay is one that um, uh, we both took screenwriting courses in college, I believe. Is that right? Oh, oh yes. And you think this would be covered in in those curriculums, and it's not, but it should be because not only is the dialogue good, it's really the structure, as you mentioned, all the setups, all the payoffs. It doesn't seem forced. It seems organic. If you're doing this kind of a procedural, this is what the screenplay uh, ideally should be like, I, I would think. I mean, it's a great model to base things off of. Um, and uh, after the scene where in the waterfall where he escapes and he's, he you know, dresses up as a janitor and all that stuff, I feel the movie gets a bit more... It feels more like a TV show then to me um, because he's not... He's trying to investigate things. It feels a lot like a... Uh, almost like a Columbo episode or something. I don't know. He's like investigating things, interviewing people. Well, the movie scene, the movie shows us every step of, of both Gerard and Kimball's investigations in, in exceeding detail. It would be very easy to gloss things over, but as a, as a lover of good mystery stories, I love that, I love that we get to see their thought processes. The movie doesn't trust us to assume that the characters can make intuitive leaps. It shows us every bit of information that leads to those intuitive leaps. Um, and a scene that I really, really loved, Kimball at one point calls his lawyer to try to get money. And his lawyer, you know, very wisely says, I know I can't do that. Then I'm aiding and abetting. All I can do is advise yeah. you to please turn yourself in. If you want to turn yourself in, I will come get you right now. Um, but... One thing I love is that, of course, Tommy Lee Jones had tapped the phones of several of Kimball's associates, and they have a recording of the phone call, and there's a great scene where all the marshals are just listening to a recording and playing it back and using ambient sound in the recording to determine that Kimball is still in Chicago. Right, because uh, Tommy Lee Jones is like, oh, I'm pretty sure that's an elevated train. Let's go back and... Uh, well, no, he's not. One of the other marshals is, and Tommy Lee Jones goes okay. on this whole rant, you mean to tell me you can hear the difference between a subway and an elevated train? <laughs> <laughs> he's like, the big dog knows it. But then at the end, he's like, the big dog knew it was an elevated train. That's a, Yeah, he calls himself <laughs> the big dog. <laughs> yeah, then, wow. Which is clearly a nickname he wants other people to use, but hardly they don't. does. <laughs> But yeah, it's, it's it's just great. It's great detective work, and likewise, when we see Kimball like uh, finds the uh, finds the prosthetic ward of the hospital, and we get scenes where he's going through medical records to narrow down who the one armed man might be, because he has a, a guidebook to prosthetic technology, and he's using that to figure out what model and type of arm the guy had, and he's like using estimated age to dig through medical records. It's and then, and then I also love it where he narrows it down to five possible people and we see him making these phone calls pretending to be detectives and yearbook committees and things like that to track these people down. It's really nice. Well, I, I like the, the brief scene and it's something you could have cut out really if you wanted to, but he, he goes to one of these people with their prosthetics and it's someone in jail and he he goes to talk to him one-on-one, and it's a bit of suspense because you don't know, is, is he going to get face-to-face with the, the killer of his wife yet? And it turns out it's not. But then he has to try to play it off as, oh, whoops, it's a mistake, and not leave and not be too suspicious. And the guy is rightfully upset because I'm sure he yeah, rarely gets right. visitors in prison. He's like, hey, I got my five minutes, man. We got to, we got to, let's have a conversation here. Yeah. We got no <laughs> entertainment here. We got no cable. Might as well talk about something. Right, yeah. And, uh, and just the way... Uh, 
Harrison Ford plays the nervousness of Dr. Kimball at that moment. I just found very effective. Yeah. And that does eventually lead. So before before we get into the actual one armed man, there's a really there's another great misdirect because the 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 basement where uh, Kimball's been staying, there's he gets woken up by the sound of police cars and he freaks out because a whole swarm of police officers comes to the apartment, uh, or uh, and. He freaks out. You think he, you know, you think he's cornered because they got the place surrounded. And then it turns out they're not there for him. They're there for the creepy son of his landlady, who it turns out has been selling drugs to kids. Right. And that's that's such a great misdirect. And the, the yeah, only I... thing, the only thing that doesn't work, and and regrettably, I know this from experience. Um, if you were is is that if you were in that kind of living situation and someone in that house was arrested for a crime, the police would interview everyone else who lives in the structure. Absolutely, yeah, to get all their bases covered. So, uh, so that's the one stretch to that scene is that is that they would have found Kimball and they would have tried to get him to make a statement uh, about the guy they just arrested. Um, so that's that's the one. I got. I guess I got to say that's the one sort of real that's the one break of realism in this movie uh, I find it's the one flaw in, in this otherwise very very tightly structured screenplay one thing that's not a flaw just struck me as some weird uh, period detail I've just never seen this before is so that uh, Dr. Kimball is moving from that to somewhere else and he, he gets his place at a hotel outside the hotel it has a sign that says men only you okay you think that's a period detail but every now and then in, in, in a lot of uh, big American cities, you will mm. find hotels that will only rent rooms to uh, to one gender or another. Okay. Um, yeah, I, I haven't seen that before. This movie takes place in Chicago, which is a pretty big city. Yeah, I don't know um, why those hotels do it, but some hotels will still do that. Yeah. That just made me thinking of, like, well, wait, is this, like, code for, like, a gay love hotel, or I don't well, some. Well, I know that some places that had policies like that, it was to like crack down on prostitution. It's oh, it's like, okay, that yeah, makes more sense. Like it, it used to be fairly common that um, hotels uh, would, if you were a couple, a hotel would only rent to you if you were a married couple. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, and and likewise, uh, likewise, if you if you were if you were single, they were like pretty like pretty adamant it's only got to be you in this room uh only you know only men in this room because the belief was if it's if it's an anonymous man and a woman well it must be prostitution that's horseshit but also very interesting yeah you can learn a lot about a country by examining its hotels next week we will talk about japanese tube hotels yes and the week afterwards piggly wiggly um okay (laughs) so I mean, really, uh, when it comes down to it, any building is a hotel if you're clever. Yeah, sure. But anyway, um, so so the real so the real one armed man. So uh, one of the people he narrows it down to. Um, let me see. Is uh, 
is a man by the name a man by the name of Frederick Sykes. Uh, he was he is a former police uh, police detective who lost his limb in the line of duty, uh, who now does uh, corporate security, and he handles security details for for a lot of big wigs who work in the uh, pharmaceutical industry. Uh, And right now, you probably won't... He's played by Andreas uh, Katsoulis. You probably won't recognize him because he's not dressed like a giant space lizard. Yeah, he played the part of uh, one of the main parts in the one of my favorite science fiction shows, Babylon Five. From the yes, 90s. he played, he played uh, Ambas- Jakar. Uh, Ambassador Jakar of uh, of the Narns, I believe, who has a, perhaps one of the best character arcs in the whole series. I mean, it's it's a tour de force performance, and and he gives such a different flavor of performance uh, in this movie. But you know, Kimball fi- sneaks into his house, does a lot of snooping around. And starts finding all sorts of weird things, such as pictures of uh, pictures of Sykes with a lot of doctors and pharmaceutical people and people that Kimball knows. And this actually ties into the beginning because some people try to invite uh, invite Kimball to go on a sort of medical corporate retreat in Cancun, but he doesn't have the time. And a lot of these are, are those pictures, and he finds like these uh, financial records. And the sh- the short of it is. This is what starts accelerating things uh, to the end game. So he's not entirely sure that Sykes is the one-armed man he's been looking for, but he knows something is up with Sykes. There's even, I believe, there's also a photo of Sykes with Kimball's wife uh, and Doctor Nichols, who uh, yes, who who is who is a friend. We see him at the at the, ch- at the charity event at the beginning of the movie. Uh, there's a really neat tense scene where, uh, which again harkens back to the past because we get a squeegee guy where Kimball finds him in his car leaving his tennis club uh, yeah. and asks him for some money. And Nichols, at first you think Nichols is giving him money, which apparently is a lot of money since he can afford to rent places. Although then again, maybe rents were different back then. I don't know. Uh, but he's a big guy. He can't have a lot of money in his wallet. Um, but at first we think it's because he thinks his friend is innocent and they know each other well. But later it turns out Nichols is not necessarily innocent of crimes uh, and that he yeah. was probably doing this to avoid... Because you find out he's not lying and he- and helping Kimball to help Kimball. He's doing it to protect himself from scrutiny. Right, because as, as the plot thickens, it turns out he is involved with um, a, a drug that's coming out called Provisic, which is a... That, if you're going to make up names for a drug, that sounds pretty convincing in my for my money. Um, yeah, that does, that does sound real. Uh, so, yeah, so after Kimball has a meeting with Dr. Kathy Walland, played by Jane Lynch. Amazing. Yeah, it's a dramatic part. It's not a comedic part, but uh, listeners might recognize Jane Lynch best from... Uh, oh, she was one of the characters in the improv comedy movie Best in Show, but she was also like the main principal in the uh, TV musical show Glee. Oh, um, she, no, she was she was the director of the cheerleaders. Okay, uh, uh, but oh, directed. but you know what you know what I love her in? She plays the head of Helping Hands in the uh, comedy movie uh, Role Models. I have not seen that movie uh, since it was in theaters, but yeah, but but she's she's very solid. Uh, very solid actress. It was such a pleasant surprise seeing her in this movie. And she still is playing it with her sort of patented Jane Lynch style, 
but it's still not comedic. And like, like, and the only thing is, is that's really arch is later in the movie when she's interviewed by the police and revealed that she's had contact with Kimball. She's just like, you'll never catch Kimball. He's too smart. Mm. <laughs> like it's yeah. a little bit arch. Cause well, that's also... one thing I like. There are a lot of people who are on Kimball's side, uh, which I, yeah. I kind of like, but, well, but we failed to notice Julianne Moore is also in this film early on where he's the janitor. He's in the hospital. And he uh, notices a, a child is um, having trouble breathing, and so he looks at the kid's x-rays, but she catches him doing that. Uh, yeah, because a lot of kids have been brought in. I guess the implication is it was a car accident, because it's lots of kids all at once. But yeah, but he determines the initial diagnosis of a broken sternum is not correct. He like has like a collapsed lung and some... some something. I, I didn't quite hear what he said it was. Yeah, but he but, redirects the kid to surgery... And forges and forges uh, authorization mm-hmm. papers so that they can do the procedure that does save the kid's life. And she, as an ER doctor, is like, "How does a where does a janitor get this expertise?" She's the one who blows his cover because yeah. she just whips off his ID badge and goes to get security. So of course he has to go on the run. It's a small part, but again, it's it's a good sort of character moment and. Um... Harrison Ford again. It's it's a, it's, the, it's the doctor part of him. He feels compassion towards this kid that's in poor health and helps him out even though he does so in an illegal fashion yeah so i want to talk about a a a key difference between the show and the movie so in in the in the show it's just kind of like and admittedly i guess this is probably a side effect by the fact that it got stretched out over four seasons but the one-armed man is just sort of like a a killer the the murdering kimball's wife isn't particularly well motivated um and in this film, they give the one-armed man some some fascinating motivation. So, here's the conspiracy, uh, and this all ties into dialogue we got in that first ten minutes. But the Provisec, it's a drug that's supposed to help break down plaque uh, in the uh, in in your arteries, uh, and you know that you know it, it, if it's on the market, it's going to put a lot of cardiovascular surgeons out of work. Uh, but Kimball noted had noticed that. It has a that patients have sort of an, who take it in the trial group have an increased risk of uh, I think it was like liver failure. Mm-hmm. That might have been kidney failure, maybe misheard, but they it's an it's organ failure. Well, it turns out it's not just a mild increase in the risk of organ failure; it's a serious increase in the risk of organ failure. And Doctor Nichols, who was one of the developers of the drug. Uh, Kimball was sending in tissue sa- liver tissue samples from the patients for these trials. Nichols and uh, Nichols and Sykes have been replacing his samples with healthy samples to make it look like the drug does not carry this medical risk, so that they can rush it through the FDA approval process. So uh, it's a huge drug; it's pharmaceutical, so billions of dollars are at stake, uh, and because Kimball knew and suspected the liver failure, uh, it was decided that he was too much of a risk for their business interests. The one-armed man was sent to Kimball's house to kill Kimball, but had a run-in with his wife instead and ended up having to kill her out of desperation. And then, and then when Dr. Kimball fought with, back, he just had yeah. to take off. Right. And that was enough to discredit Kimball and get him out of the way. So I, I love that motivation. I love this conspiracy that spins out uh, throughout uh, throughout this movie. And the sad thing is, 
that's that's kind of true. So much money yeah. is at stake in, in the pharmaceutical industry that you will often have cases where the risks of certain drug experimental drugs are downplayed to get it through the approval process. Right, and you have you know just like in this movie, doctors can be in bed with the the uh, the drug companies and and the FDA approval process for for medical drugs takes like years, if not like over decades sometimes. But once it's approved by the FDA and you can sell it, I mean, there's serious money there. And um, at what cost? So, yeah, I like that it's a subplot. I think it's believable. It's exciting. And it leads things to the conclusion where uh, Kimball sees that Nichols is going to do a Provasic uh, presentation. Yeah, he's the key, he's the keynote speaker at this uh, pharmaceutical conference. So he he confronts him in the middle of the keynote speech, and I love the way everyone in the audience reacts, where they're all sort of stunned and shocked, and they're all kind of standing up and backing away. <laughs> but it also then leads to a really fun sort of rooftop confrontation. Uh, it's a three it's a three way chase uh, between uh, Gerard Nichols and Kimball. Uh, there's some stuff, some fun stuff with an elevator. Uh, it eventually, and 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 eventually, it, it's great because it at because at this point Gerard has figured out what Kimball's been up to and realizes after investigating after investigating uh, Sykes that Kimball might be onto something that he is innocent and and Gerard even says while they're doing the whole cat and mouse and the constructing in the uh, in the construction of the. Uh, of the hotel, he's like, Kim, I, I believe you're innocent. You know, uh, <laughs> I know about the one armed man, and it's just, and it's just great. And I love that. I love that Kimball jumps around the because uh, Nichols is about to shoot Gerard, so that I guess he can blame it on uh, on Kimball. But Kimball comes around the corner, waylays uh, Nichols with a piece of pipe. And that's when, and that's when he turns himself over to Gerard's custody. Now that he knows Gerard knows he's innocent, but the thing is, I think he also knows Gerard is a man of his word. Gerard's not going to lie and say mm-hmm. that he believes Kimball's innocent. If he says he believes Kimball is innocent, he must mean it. And so, you know, we finally, you know, we see a bunch of reporters talking about the fight that's happened and uh, and and uh, sort of kind of ra- essentially wrapping up the movie. And Kimball's in the backseat of a police cruiser, and Gerard comes in. Gerard unhandcuffs him and gives him an ice pack to for his wrist because of course you know everyone thinks Kimball's a crazed murderer so of course they have to bring him out in cuffs just to make people think he's safe uh, and and not like because because that's the other thing is because uh, Sykes earlier shot a Metro cop on the train when uh, Ger- when uh, Kimball confronts him there that Kimball gets blamed everyone thinks he's a cop killer. And everyone thinks the Chicago police will just gun him down the moment they see him. But it's great because they have this great character moment. He's like, do you remember what you said to me in the tunnel? And I told you I was innocent. You said you didn't care. Well, I guess I care enough to, to help you out now. Don't tell anybody I care, though. <laughs> yeah, it's a nice character moment. You see Timmy Lee Jones smile. Harrison Ford kind of gives... He doesn't give a slight grimace. Like He just sort of just seems relieved and exhausted, as one would. Well, both but, characters, after the whole movie, are finally able to let their guard down. So it's it's really it's mm, really touching. But, yeah, but... Um, so that's the that's the end of the picture. But before that, I, I, I do question in the film how they wrap up... How they do that final confrontation between Kimball and Sykes. Oh, yes. Because I don't think that's especially satisfying. Well... 
it's not it's not in in a lot of ways because like that is the guy who killed his wife so you would think taking him down would be the climax of the film yeah. not taking down the mastermind behind the pharmaceutical conspiracy but I think well I think the other thing that makes it not quite work so we talked about how Kimball is sort of an everyman throughout this movie except when he fights Sykes when he fights Sykes suddenly he's Harrison Ford action star like, he doesn't fight like a yeah. doctor trying to survive. He fights like a guy who knows fight choreography. And and Sykes, regrettably, does not put up much of a fight. Right, and I think, um, what if in that final showdown on the roof he had Sykes in the middle of all that as well? Like, that could have been pretty exciting. Like, a crazy... Well, you have every reason for him to be there because, uh, as we know, he does security for all the pharmaceutical bigwigs. Well, all the pharmaceutical bigwigs are in that building. He should be there. Right. It's that they take him out, you know, earlier before, it's like right before um, Kimball goes and confronts uh, Nichols at the, in the lobby in the presentation. Um, it, it just struck me as kind of strange and anticlimactic. And I'm wondering if there isn't an earlier draft of the script where there is a, yeah, I, I don't know if typical is the right word, but sort of a more rewarding uh, conclusion. You know, I don't know. I mean, it, it could be. But overall, I'm very satisfied with how this film uh, turned out. And the film, it's, it's I think it's like two, it's two hours and ten minutes. It doesn't feel that long. Uh, mm-hmm. Like you, it's 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 kind of like it's it's one of those films where the moment I realize how long it is, it starts to end. So I don't I don't consider that too much of a flaw. There's no there's no wasted time in this movie. It needs that two hours and ten minutes. Right, and it's and it doesn't you know every minute is very carefully thought of. It um, you spend a lot of time on the investigation, which is interesting. All the characters have pretty good scenes. Yeah, I would give The Fugitive an unquestionable sequel. Yes. Absolutely sequel, yes. I don't know how you would get a sequel out of it, uh, except for the one that we did get, but sequel, yes, indeed. And speaking of which, next week we talk about U.S. Marshals, but, um, so for our pitch a sequel segment, I had something in mind. Oh, yeah. I would have it take place after this film, and uh, Harrison Ford reprises his role as Dr. Richard Kimball, and he is, um, it turns out he actually starts dating... The uh, the nurse that turned him in, Doctor Eastman, played by Julianne Moore. Hmm. He he goes back and and some you know there's there's some scene that sets up that they've been dating and they go on uh, they go like on a vacation to uh, to to Thailand and they they fall they uh, have a passionate night and fall asleep and then when they wake up. Julianne Moore sees that Dr. Kimball has been murdered. Huh. And so she's the fugitive. And you're in Thailand, so you're dealing with international law. And you would have, um, probably do something, you know, with like Asian gangsters going on. And there, there would be some kind of a plot that would um, make it, give it kind of a different flavor because of its location. Hmm. I like, I like the 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 different setting in that. Yeah, so I, I would call it the um, the fugitive Thailand style. Hmm. 
So I've got my own my own sequel. Yeah, so I so I want there to be a fugitive in this movie, but I want that fugitive to be Frederick Sykes. So Ooh, the okay. movie's going to open with Frederick Sykes escaping from prison where he's been since uh, since he was revealed to be a murderer in the first film. Uh, and he gets out and he decides he wants revenge on Dr. Richard Kimball. Okay. So the movie is he starts stalking he starts stalking uh, stalking Kimball and essentially planting evidence suggesting Kimball is guilty of other crimes. Uh, and so uh, Kimball ends up having to team up with deputy with he's not just a deputy US marshal, he's now a full US marshal Samuel mm. Gerard who is the only person who believes who believes Kimball and you come to find out there's another conspiracy afoot. It turns out uh, there are still people in the Chicago Police Department who think Dr. Dr. Richard Kimball is a cop killer. They don't believe that Frederick Sykes was the one who shot the Metro police officer. So the short of it is, this conspiracy of Chicago police officers helped Sykes escape from jail, knowing okay. they could use him to get revenge on Richard Kimball. Well, how does he want to get revenge on Richard Kimball? By murdering him? Or? Well, no, no, by, by getting him back on death row. I, okay, I see. Although, when that fails to happen, when Gerard is able to prove Kimball's innocence, uh, this time Gerard will be the one proving Kimball's innocence, uh, that's when Sykes just says, screw it, I'll just kill Kimball. And so we get, uh, we'll get another uh, thrilling uh, three-way chase sequence. This one, I think, will do, we'll do on uh, the Chicago Mass Transit, and, um, Chicago Mass Transit System uh, train track junction. So there'll be moving trains, it'll be high stakes, people could get hit and die at any moment. Uh, and it's going to end. It's going to end with another. Of course, Sykes will be defeated, but it's going to end with another sort of tender moment between Kimball and Gerard. Only this time, it's Kimball helping Gerard. Like he patches up one of Gerard's wounds. Uh, you know, they have another nice little back and forth. And so that's that's going to be that's going to be my uh, my fugitive part two. I'm not going to give it a fancy title. It's just going to be fugitive part two. Would it have a scene where Doctor Kimball is walking around? And he gets spooked by a noise, and it, he turns around, and it's just a little kid playing with a toy train. I think that's a bit too on the nose. I'm not going to okay. do that. <laughs> well, neat. Uh, it's, it's, I cannot remember the last time we did a pitch a sequel or just for a movie that's more down-to-earth. Yeah, normally one of us adds an alien invasion, which I almost did. I almost made my pitch a sequel a crossover with The Invaders. Well, you know, David Twohey, the, one of the writers on The Fugitive, also wrote the, um, it's actually a movie that has a sequel, he wrote the original one of The, the Arrival with Charlie Sheen. Oh, yeah. Which is an interesting little uh, B picture. Um, so, Thrasher, I believe you have a question. Uh, yes, yes. Uh, <clears throat> and that question is, can you name all the structures that uh, Gerard wants searched? Gerard wants a, a hen house, a um, a pancake house, a no, 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 no. The question is, what you watching? So, Thrasher, what you watching? Well, I, I'm trying to remember if I talked about this before, but did I mention uh, uh, the house with the clock in its walls? No. Not okay, in detail. So, That's with the Jack Black. It's a pretty recent movie, right? Like a kid's yeah, movie? Yes, it's it's, ba it's based on a novel. It's, it's a kid's movie. Uh, it's directed, though, it's... Excuse me. It's uh oh, crud! Hold on a second. I I, I lost I lost my notes because of uh, a browser window uh, crash. Oh, here we go. It's Was directed it Eli by Roth. horror auteur Eli Roth. Hmm. And strangely enough, 
I find that it's better directed than any of the horror films of his that I've seen. I I really Isn't want to see Amblin Eli Roth Isn't... direct some other fantasy films now that, after seeing this. Isn't this an Amblin movie or no? Uh actually I it has the feel of an Amblin okay. movie. I don't believe it is an Amblin movie, but it's ba- it's based on a novel of the same name by uh, John Belair's. Um but it's about it's about this kid. His uh, his parents die, so he goes to live with his eccentric uncle, played by Jack Black. And it turns out his uncle uh, is is a magician who lives in a magic house, and he has a best friend, played by Kate Blanchett, uh, named Florence Zimmerman, who's who's a witch. I love their back and forth. They're always sparring and sniping at each other, but you can tell that there's affection behind those interactions. And it never turns into a romantic subplot. They remain platonic friends throughout the entire movie, uh, which is which is something I love seeing. I hate shoehorned in love stories. I see, but but it it all turns out that the house there's this mysterious ticking noise in the house, and it turns out the house used to belong to an evil wizard, uh, and that he hid a magic clock in it that's counting down to something, but nobody knows to what, and that evil wizard is played by Kyle MacLachlan. Oh, I didn't know that. Huh. Yeah, he is, he is, does a Is he good? Yeah, oh, he's he's real good. Yeah. The the only flaw in how they use Kyle MacLachlan is um is that he's dead, but he gets resurrected as this kind of zombie later on, and I don't particularly like the zombie makeup and he spends most of the movie in it. Yeah. Like he he he's not an actor who can act well in makeup. I think they should have come up with a contrivance to make him look more human and alive uh, as it went on. But other than that, he does a great Kyle MacLachlan performance. I mean, he's he's the person that you want to play an evil wizard. Um, there it does it, it does get a little bit too indulgent with the CGI, and there's a bad running gag about a pooping topiary. But beyond that, this was a very fun, very enchanting movie that sort of harkens that harkens back to a lot of like uh, Amblin's like eighties films. I could imagine this having been made in the eighties. Although was the the chill, the kid acting good? He's not, he's not bad. Uh, he, he's mm. he's tolerable, which is about the best you can hope for in, in, right. in most child actors. Um, but. So one thing one thing that does stand out though this movie contains something more frightening than anything in any of uh, Eli Roth's horror movies um but uh later later on in the film there's a whole thing where the clock is going to the the magic clock can manipulate time uh in the climax of the movie Jack Black gets hit with a bolt of energy that's discharged from the magic clock and it turns him into a baby but it doesn't just turn him into a baby it turns him into this grotesque animatronic that is a baby body, but Jack Black's adult head. It is terrifying. Ugh. Don't look directly into it. <laughs> Weird. But this, this is, but this is. I would say it's, 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 it's fun. It's worth watching. If if you have kids, they'll probably enjoy it too. Like this, this is a movie I could see myself watching with my kids. I don't have any kids, but if I did have them, I would watch this movie with them. I'm also planning on tracking down the book. Uh, I'd, I'd ah, really like yeah. to read the original book. I wonder, is the book a standalone or is it a series? So far as I know, it's uh, it's a standalone. Got Actually, it. I'm checking... Uh, no, actually, it looks like it is It is just... It's just, a, uh, just the one book. Okay. 
Oh, um, although apparently there was a okay, so there was a T in nineteen seventy nine there was a TV anthology series called Once Upon a Midnight Scary, hosted by Vincent Price. There are hmm. three episodes based on this book. Okay, that would be interesting to track down. Hmm. Who knew? Oh no, I'm sorry. Three se- it's it's one episode, but there are three segments. So yeah, so that I wonder if that exists. I'll have to track that down too. Yeah, they they do have a, more of those uh, anthology horror series uh, available than you would think. Um, yeah, so I watched a movie. Uh, I've been playing a lot of these um, video games from Sega called Yakuza, um, mm. and they're like Japanese gangster, uh, but it, with RPG mechanics, and it plays a little bit like um, uh, think of like a Final Fantasy game kind of mixed, but the the fight scenes are more like something out of the Final Fight games. Um, anyhow, I was, it made me want to look for a kind of film like that, and it turns out on Amazon Prime in the U.S., they have the first eight out of ten movies in the Battles Without Honor and Humanity series. Huh. So these are based on uh, newspaper articles written by Kozo Mino, um, who was involved with the Japanese Mafia, which is what the Yakuza is, um... And so it's loosely based on true things, and they change character names and events a bit. But um, so I watched the first film out of the five initial five film series called Battles Without Honor and Humanity, and it's it's really good. I, I think I'd have to watch it more than once to fully get what's going on. Um, unfortunately, the version that's on Amazon Prime it displays the subtitles in the bottom of the screen, and they cut off the bottoms of the letters. Oh, that now, sucks. Now, fortunately, it's only like for you only get confused on Y's and V's, right? Well, you know, I guess I guess that's true. The other so levels are been, usually self-evident. Right, it could have been worse, but you would think there would be. I, I imagine maybe this wasn't checked because perhaps all this stuff is kind of automated in their system. But um, you think whoever was hard burning the subtitles into the film could have moved them up, uh, even like ten pixels. I think would have done it. Aside from that, and the kind of spelling mistakes that litter the subtitles, um, I could follow it well enough. It's pretty good. You know, it says it takes place immediately after nineteen, uh, immediately after World War Two, and on a uh, kind of U.S. Army base that's in Japan, a woman gets raped, and a guy goes in to stop it. And then this guy gets uh, involved with uh, with gangsters and eventually becomes a made man in the Yakuza. And um, unlike The Godfather, which is a bit romanticized, this one, is, it's a pretty brutal film. People get shot. People keep on, like, backstabbing each other. There's a lot of these Machiavellian schemes. Um, and yet, because it's a Japanese film, it, it has a different flavor to it. I'd say perhaps more uh, restraint in some issues. There's even some humor in there, which is kind of surprising. Huh. <coughs> I'm going to have to track this one down. Yeah, it's on Amazon Prime. It's called Battles Without Honor and Humanity. Um, don't confuse this one with new Battles Without Honor and Humanity. The Next Generation. Um, yeah, which is the name of not one, but two other films in this series. So, um, 
interestingly enough, the, when this was released uh, in the U.S. initially, it was under the title The Yakuza Papers, um, hmm. which I think is a pretty bland title compared to Battles Without Honor and Humanity. And Battles Without Honor and Humanity has a link, uh, is the name of a well-known track in the Quentin Tarantino movie Kill Bill Volume 1. Oh, so I, I had mentioned a Pulp Fiction thing. Yes, with The Fugitive, yeah. Uh, and and this, this ties into what we're going to do as our sequel scene. But So Pulp Fiction came out in 1994. This came out in 1993. There's a scene in this that prefigures the snappy hitman banter of Pulp okay. Fiction that would then plague move, action movies in the 90s and plague student film scripts to this day. It, it, it's the overwritten... Two, rever- two reference-heavy dialogue? Uh, essentially, yeah, because there's this nice exchange where where um, where Marshall Biggs uses the word hinky, and Gerard goes off on this whole thing about hinky and like what words mean, and it, I, I feel... I feel like it prefigures the, you know what they call a quarter pounder with cheese in France? Like, it, it feels mm-hmm. like that kind of scene. It doesn't move the story along, it just makes the character... It just makes the characters more human and likable and gives them some fun dialogue to say, but it doesn't actually impact the narrative at all. Well, what a good segue. Let's go into the sequel scene. All right, so in this scene, we have Marshall uh, Marshall Biggs, Marshall Henry, and uh, Deputy Marshal Samuel Gerard. I will say this, since Marshall Henry only has one line, we'll just assume that Marshall Biggs says it for the purposes of our... uh, of our uh, reenactment, but I don't know, who, who do you want to do? Do you want to do uh, Biggs or Gerard? I'll do Biggs, do you mind? Oh, no, not at all. Okay, um, alright, so, in the scene, these two are talking to, to each other about Kimball, and here we go. This is Hinky, the guy's a college graduate, he went to medical school, he's not going to come through all the security, go to county lockup to find someone his people say does not exist. Hinky. Well, what does that mean, Biggs? Hinky. I don't know. Strange? Weird? Well, why don't you just say strange or weird? I mean, hinky, that has no meaning. Well, we say hinky. I don't want you guys using words around me that have no meaning. I am taking the stairs and walking. How about bullshit? How about bullshit, Sam? (laughs) I love that exchange. Yeah, smart piece of dialogue. And that connection to Pulp Fiction you made is pretty smart. I... I didn't think of it when I was watching the film, and now that you mention it, I can't unsee it. And uh, <laughs> oh, you just have so many scenes in these uh, Pulp Fiction knockoffs, and, uh, and, and in student films especially, where it, it sounds like someone's doing, like, done poorly, it sounds like a, a an awful stand-up comedy routine. <laughs> yeah, that's why do they say Why do they say hinky? It has no meaning. <laughs> I just don't get it. I mean, hinky, is that, is that what you say when something isn't so quite hinky enough to be jinky? At what point does hinky become jinky? And my wife likes to be hinky sometime, if you know what I mean, but that might be another word entirely. Yeah, it, I don't know. what that, <laughs> You almost became Rodney Dangerfield there. Oh, oh boy, I tell you, I came in there, uh, uh, pretty hinky and not at all jinky, if you know what I mean. Oh, oh. I don't want you guys using words around me that got no meaning, they ain't got no respect. I'll tell you, it got no meaning. It got no meaning at all. Woof. Um, 
Okay. Oh yeah, I I, I suggest that you don't meet Wally Sparks. Um. No, although one neat thing about those line of not very good um, direct-to-video movies that Rodney Dangerfield did towards the end of his career is he had a lot of his comedian friends gave them small parts in it because he gave a lot of comedians a leg up with his Rodney Dangerfield's Club and the HBO specials Rodney Dangerfield presents whatever right oh the young com- mean, the young comedian yeah, specials young comedians yeah. like Jim Carrey uh, comes to mind but there's other ones as well so now he he was a titan yeah yeah definitely uh, I think more so than people uh, might realize all right well let's um let's go and plug some things <laughs> all right what's your plug of the week Okay, so my uh, my plug of the week. Uh, regrettably, I do not have any. Uh, I do not have any uh, new releases to talk about. So actually, I'll just talk about a. Uh, I'll just talk, actually no. I got something I'm I'm working on. So continuing the 100 Oddities series that I co-author with Clint Staples and Michael Ovarhola, we are uh, finishing up development on 100 Trinket Oddities, which is our own version of the Trinket Table that appears in the current fifth edition of Dungeons and Dragons. We thought the table was good, not great, so we are doing our own version, which hopefully will, in fact, be great. Uh, I've done all, I've turned in all the illustrations for it. Uh, with any luck, it will be out within a month of when you hear this episode. So go to drivethroughrpg.com, look for 100 Oddities for a Trinket, uh, and if it's not out by the time this episode drops or when you're listening to it, just search for 100 Oddities and get any of the other 10 books we've already done. Yeah, um... I'm working on something I cannot talk about, but what I can talk so about I. is, uh, isn't that the case with creative work sometimes? It's like you want to say something, but you can't. Yeah, the, the NDAs <laughs> suck. <laughs> right, and then often when it's announced, like you like you as the writer is surprised as much as anyone else. Well, actually, the, the good surprise is when you get paid for something you forgot you did. <laughs> that Yeah, that too. Like, like it sucks well, you I have guess... to wait that long, but it's nice to just get a check and to not realize what, how you got it. Right, like nine months later, like, oh yeah, this is for that. I don't even remember writing that. Right, uh, I've certainly had that myself. Um, so, on February 23rd at the Portland, Oregon Convention Center, I will be doing a sequel cast live show with my friends out here in Oregon, Eric nice. Windsor, Tony Minsett, and Sean Franson. We, uh, we're doing this at Wizard World Portland, which is the biggest convention in Portland, Oregon. Um, I can't recall if I've done a panel for that convention before, but I've done, uh, actually I was sort of surprised I thought about it, like over the past five years, I've spoken at three or four different conventions um, in Portland, uh, which is, which has been a fun experience, and I think one of these days, Thrasher, you and I will have to do the Lawn Threatened Live podcast, because we've done this show for over 400 episodes, about a decade, if not slightly more, maybe, maybe yep. 11 years by now. And, and we've, we've almost got it figured out. Uh, yeah, we've almost got it figured out. We've um, we, our listeners have gone to single to double digits, <laughs> and uh, we've never done a show with us both in the same room. And if I was going to do that, I would like to do that live at a convention. Well, well I am tr- I'm in the process of trying to make some inroads at DragonCon. If I can yeah. secure the things I need to secure, uh, then I say we try to schedule it for there. 
Right, I could pull it off. I wouldn't even need they wouldn't even need to provide me uh, a hotel or something, or I could crash with you, but I could also live with family there. But that's more detail than they want to know. Anyway, <laughs> February twenty third at the uh, Portland Wizard World Comic Con at the Oregon Convention Center, I'll be leading a panel uh, called Sequel Cast Live, in which we are ranking the MCU, the Marvel Cinematic Universe films, from worst to best in our opinion. And it turns out, you know, when we do that convention, that's only a few weeks before Captain Marvel comes out, and maybe a month or a month or two before Avengers uh, Endgame comes out. Oh yes. And I think the third MCU movie coming out this year is uh, Spider-Man International Backpacking. I don't I don't recall the name of it. The one oh, uh, it was it Far From Home? Far From Home, and it has uh, Jake Gyllenhaal as Mysterio. Mysterio. And I hope he gets to have that classic fishbowl look to his... Outfit. I don't know if you've seen the trailer, but he does. Okay. I, I watched part of the trailer on a bus, and I lost connection, but I'll have to see it. But um, real quick, what do you think of uh, Tom Holland as Spider-Man? I like him. I, I like that he, they, he, that he looks age-appropriate to the character. Yeah. <laughs> he, Toby McGuire, and it's not his fault, but he always, kind of like Nicolas Cage, really, has always looked older than his real age. Mm, yeah. And it was long in the tooth to see him as a high school student, even in that original Spider-Man from 2000. So, uh, yeah, that they have someone that actually looks like a kid that's a bit younger. I think it's funny that out of the three actors playing Spider-Man on the big screen, two of them have been British. Well, well, actually, out of four, because don't forget, don't forget Miles Morales. Uh, yeah, I mean, admittedly right. he's not it Peter Parker, animated, but, but we got two yeah. Peter Parkers in Spider-Verse, so five, six, six, we have six Spider-Men on the big screen. I need to see Spider-Verse. I, I saw a clip where John Mulaney was talking about his, uh, his part getting the role of, um, Spider-Ham. Oh, yeah. Which, by, by the way, like, Marvel, uh, Sony, whoever the hell has the movie rights to Spider-Man. Sony. Spider-Ham, uh, put... Just do short Spider-Ham cartoons to put at the front of all the comic book movies. I just want to see that. I want little, mm. I want little five to ten minute Spider-Ham adventures. Just, just as an appetizer. I believe uh, J. Michael Straczynski, who uh, not only created Babylon Five but also wrote for such classic cartoons as Real Ghostbusters and um, He-Man. She wrote, which is not a cartoon, and He-Man, of course. Uh, you're right. Um, has done work for Marvel uh, over the years. And I think even once he wrote a Spider-Ham one-shot or something, and he had to beg Marvel to do it because Spider-Ham is one of his favorite Marvel characters. I'm going to have to look into that because I, my, I, my Spider-Ham collection is not complete. I'd love to get whatever he wrote for it. So, um, listeners, uh, Spider-Ham is an alternate universe version of Spider-Man, where, as you might guess from the name, he's an anthropomorphic pig. And his alias is Peter Porker. And is, did he start in the 70s or was it the 80s? It's... Uh, I believe he started in 82. He was part okay. of the Marvel Comics Star imprint, which is uh, where they tried to publish, where they published a lot of kid-friendly comics. And uh, he was kind of the standout star of that particular run. He Also, I just want to point out some of the other characters. He often teams up with Captain America and Dear Devil uh, <laughs> and faces enemies such as Bullfrog and Doctor Doom. And it does not sound that stupid. Like, they're actually good comic stories. 
And I'm sure they're good character designs too. It's just Oh, and let's not forget and this is this is real. This was in the final issue of the Marvel par- self-parody comic What the There is a Spider-Ham yeah. 2099 whose secret identity is Pigel Parker. Ah, okay, changing the sex. Uh No, no, he's it's it's he's male. Pigel, oh, remember because Miguel is the name of the <laughs> Spider-Man 2099. Uh, so Spider-Ham 2099 is Pigel. Remember in, I think it was maybe the the early 2000s where uh, Marvel sort of relaunched their What If series? Oh, yeah. Uh, one of the ones they were going to do, this is not related really to Spider-Ham, but it just came to mind. One of them they were going to do, and it was going to be written by Brian Michael Bendis, and he pitched this and Marvel immediately shot him down was what if Kevin Smith finished his comics on time? <laughs> because he was contracted to do a Spider-Man miniseries that I think never got finished because he kept on blowing deadlines. I, so, yeah, I could see that. But later then, he did a Green Arrow run, and as part of it, DC said, you have, when you turn it in, you have to turn in all 12 scripts completed at once huh. to guarantee uh, to not have that problem. So, I wish he would have done that. I think another sort of what-if story, uh, some, uh, I believe, it might have even, I think it was Brian Michael Bendis, I could be wrong about this, pitched to, you remember, Star Wars had a, a what-if series for a bit there in the 2000s with really oh, good artwork. Yeah, Dark Horse was, did those. It was called, yeah. like, like I they, they had a fancy title, which sadly I don't remember, but yes. Uh, and I think his pitch for one of those was going to be, what if Luke got Leia pregnant? And Lucasfilm said, absolutely no way. But that would be a hell of a comic. <laughs> I mean, you could ju- you could justify it by changing the story so that they never find out that they're related until oh, afterwards. Oh, but no, I'm I sure. think that's what would make it interesting. You'd have to keep that in there and then have, like, make it be like a comic about abortion set in a galaxy far, far away. Th- think of all the midichlorians that kid would have. <laughs> <clears throat> oh, so in case anyone else is as big of a Spider-Ham fan as me, I found the Michael Straczynski comic. Yes. The J. Michael Straczynski comic came out in 2007. It's Ultimate Civil War Spider-Ham. That's the comic you want to find. Ooh, okay. So, hmm. They did so many of those different Civil War crossovers, and I think they did a second Civil War, didn't they? Or? They, they did do a second Civil War, and I'm sure uh. we'll see a third within the next two years. Huh. Are you still reading Spider? I guess we'll wrap up on this note. Are you still reading Spider Man? What kind of comics are you reading nowadays? Uh, right now, I've been I've been reading a lot of uh, a, a lot of older comics that I, I've really I've really been into you know buying buying collections. Uh, so right now, uh, what I what I'm reading is I actually I got this big collection of uh, ElfQuest, which was. One of the mm, biggest okay. independent comic books in the in the eighties. It almost had the same trajectory Ninja Turtles did, but nobody like anyone who bought the rights to it was never sure how to market it. So the movie, the television series, the action figures, mm. none of that stuff ever got made. Um, I've really I've really been enjoying it. I now understand why it was why it had such a dedicated fan base uh, back in the eighties. I now I can appreciate I can appreciate the qualities of it. It still has some stuff that is is like the kind of fantasy bullshit that keeps me from enjoying a lot of fantasy stuff but overall it's been it's been a really fun read uh, i love i love the art style uh, i like i like i like that there it clearly has sort of long term storytelling in mind it's clearly the characters are meant to change and grow and have arcs 
And I can't so wait it, to see where they go as I as I read through the collection. So it sounds like, given that it's fantasy, the, the storylines kind of have a longer arc. Well, yeah, like, it covers, like, the, the first... I, I'm still in, like, like, halfway through the full volume, but, like, several years have passed. Okay. There have, there have been a few time jumps. There have been these asides where we see what other characters are doing after they split up and then go back to the main story. So there's, there's a lot going on. The storytelling is very sophisticated. Great. Sounds good. I hope everyone enjoyed that tangent. Uh, yep, if they didn't, they're not listening to what we're saying right now. So um, so next week on SequelCast 2, we'll be looking at the sequel to The Fugitive, U.S. Marshals. And then after that, we'll be looking at a duology of films, Waxwork, 1 and 2. Oh, yeah. Hot with, Wax. Uh, with John Reese davies as a werewolf, I believe, in one of them. Um, I cannot wait. That'll give me lots of excuses to bust out my John Rice davies impression. Mr. Mallory! You have opened a door. It is, no, that, that doesn't sound like him. <laughs> I'm th- but when I think of John Rice davies I think of the Quest for Glory 4 computer game that had him do all the narrator uh, voiceovers. Oh, he's so good at that. <laughs> I think there's a YouTube video probably with um, with all that stuff, and it's like three hours worth of like him going like, she looks at you suspiciously. Like it's just like such that like, he has that rich, fantastic it's, voice. It's Hector the Hexapod. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and what I right? love is that his narration has so much gravitas, and like it's exactly the voice you want as a narration. But like half the characters, their voices are just bad celebrity impersonations. Like the three villagers who are Jack Nicholson, Nicholson Rodney uh, Dangerfield, and uh, I forget who the third one was. You got to watch out for the Baba Yaga. She doesn't give no respect. Yeah, yeah. It's just. Um, I tell you what, Igor's death must be uh-huh, avenged. Uh-huh. Yeah, no, I absolutely remember that. Um, all right, this is not quest for glory. For all of that, this is not quest for glory cast. <laughs> so yeah, next week we'll be doing the sequel, U.S. Marshals. Uh, follow me on Twitter at matwbt. Follow me on Twitter at Internet Mayor. For sequel cast two, this is Matt. And this is Thrasher. Same. Newman, what are you doing? I'm thinking. Well, think me up a cup of coffee and a chocolate donut with some of them uh, little sprinkles on top while you're thinking. 